The CIS benchmarks are secure configuration recommendations for hardening specific technologies in an organization's environment. Each benchmark is the product of an ongoing consensus project involving the generous volunteer efforts of subject matter experts, technology vendors, public and private community members, academics, and the CIS Benchmarks development team. CIS Benchmarks are a key component of an organization's overall security against cyber attacks, and each CIS Benchmark recommendation maps to the CIS Critical Security Controls, or CIS Controls. There are more than 100 CIS benchmarks across 25-plus vendor product families available through free PDF download for non-commercial use. CIS benchmarks coverage includes security guidelines that are applicable to cloud provider platforms and cloud services, containers, databases, desktop software, server software, mobile devices, network devices, and operating systems. Learn more about CIS benchmarks by visiting C-I-S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y dot org slash benchmarks. With your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Danny boy, what's happening, man? Not much, Chris. What you drinking tonight? Okay, let me get a... Oh, hey, Chris. Yo, Sophia, I didn't see you there. What's new? Well, you know, I have to tell you, it's never my intention when I come in here, but I just met a guy here at the bar. Maybe you know him. Oh, yeah? Where's he at? He had to step away for a quick minute. He'll be right back. But I uh, I really think I struck the gold mine with this one. He's an actual Nigerian prince. Wait a second. Yeah, and if this all works out, you could be talking to future royalty right now. Hold up. That damn Nigerian prince is back again? I permanently banned him from here like years ago. Somehow he keeps showing up. I don't get it. Sophia, you have to be careful. He is a known fraud. He'll lure you in with his charm and then ultimately take your money and disappear. Oh, you mean like the Tinder spindler? <laughs> oh, you know about that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Sophia, that's true. I mean, this guy's been running this scam for years on unsuspecting victims. Oh, come on, guys. Give me some credit. I'm not stupid. You'll meet him in a few seconds and see if he's the real deal. Well, for your sake, I hope you're right. In the meantime, Danny, let me get a drink. What you pouring up tonight? Well, Chris, here's a drink I'm going to hook you up with. It's called a fishbowl. In an ice-filled glass, pour in two ounces of vodka, two ounces of coconut rum, one and a half ounce of peach schnapps, and two ounces of blue raspberry vodka. Then, shake it well to mix. Then, throw in some Nerds candy and Swedish fish into the base of a round glass and fill it up with ice. Pour the mix in and finally top it off with two ounces of Sprite. All right, thanks, man. Well... Listen, Sophia, I got to run. I see a professional that just walked in that's a true expert on strengthening the weakest link. Whatever. You're lost. Have fun. 
All right, Chris. I'll see you next round. Hey, Danny, I'm going to tab out. Oh, shit. Where's my credit card? Arun Vishwanath, a leading expert in human cyber risk, has held faculty positions at the University of Buffalo, Indiana University, and the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He's published close to 50 peer-reviewed papers on human cyber vulnerabilities and has also written for CNN, The Washington Post, and other major media outlets. Welcome to Barcode Room. Hi, it's great to be here, Chris. And I'm also here with my special co-host, Dr. Matthew Canham. And for those that don't yet know Matt, Matt has appeared on the Barcode previously and is an expert in cognitive psychology, social engineering, and the human factor of cybersecurity. He spent time at the FBI where he handled insider threat cases, managed their emerging technology program, and also consulted with their behavioral analysis unit. Matt, so glad to have you back on and and able to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. So I first want to hit on a major issue that all organizations continue to face, which is phishing. In fact, in the most recent 2022 Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, They stress the importance of having a strong security awareness program in place, which, as we all know, is a critical element of securing any organization. 82% of all breaches recorded last year in 2021 um, involved a social engineering attack of some type, with cyber criminals leveraging email phishing as the attack vector in over 60% of those attacks. Arun, I'm curious to know your biggest critique of security awareness training as we know it and why it's not effective, you know, with the understanding of the problem that we have and the tool sets available in the product space today, shouldn't that metric reflect a more positive impact? Right. Hey, and before I begin, Hey, I've got to say a shout out to Matt for being on the show. Um, So good to see you too, Matt. Um, you know, hey, you know, I l- let me just begin by saying, you know, I think security awareness is not a bad thing. It's it's been there now. For, first, you know, what do we even mean by security awareness? It's it's unclear as to what we're really talking about, and I just don't mean us. It just means what is security awareness, right? Um, I can tell you one thing. By now, everybody in the world is aware. If you use just awareness as the standard of phishing. Right. I mean, I, I can talk about five years ago, I was in some part of Indonesia, I was giving a presentation and I talked about a Nigerian fishing attack and someone raised their hand. In fact, I think a lot of people by show of hands said, hey, we know what this is. Um, is there someone who's not aware at this point or hasn't received one? Um, I would find that hard to believe. Right. And, and then let's look at the data here. Right. Most of these attacks that are happening now successfully reported by DBIR, are in organizations which have a security awareness program in place. They have been hit on their head repeatedly by now with security awareness training, as it is the gold standard of training. Um, And what do we see? We still see the same attacks having the same success, if not even more success than they ever do it. So we got to say, well, you know, the data points to something that isn't working, which is what I've been talking about now, you know, for the last four to five years, which is, uh, you know, there's something that's that's dramatically wrong here. It's not working, and and there's a lot of things here uh, uh, that, that 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 point to the fact that the paradigm that we have, as it is right now, 
does not work. It can be improved. It needs to be improved. And it's time we did it because we can't wait for the next Verizon DBIR to tell us, hey, you know what? The attacks have gone up even more. And that's all we've been seeing for the last uh, five, six years now. So if I can ask a follow-up to that, do you think, Arun, that this is a result of just a numbers game? You send out 10 million emails and you're going to get a few people that are going to respond? Or do you think that this is more a, a factor of just how human cognition works and that these people are pushing the right buttons? Right. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a mix of both, right? One is, why does phishing, why did it even begin, right? And let's be, let's be very honest. I mean, uh, I want to go back to, you know, Chris's point too, which is, when did this all begin? right? You would think this began, I mean, I, if you look at some of the data right now, people say, oh, it began the last five years. No, it didn't. You know, the first major spear phishing attack began in 1998 in AOL. That's where it got its name, spear phishing. And, and guess what they did back then in 1998 in AOL when it was kind of the market-leading ISP? Well, they sent everybody an email warning them about it. They said, let's create awareness. Uh, what does that tell you, right? We're in 2022, uh, which is, you know, a gazillion years in internet time, right? At the speed at which computing moves. And we're still sending emails after the Ukraine invasion, warning everybody, hey, there's a phishing attack that the Russians might be sending. Be careful. But what we haven't done is ever through these entire time period in this 22, 25 years, even try to figure out why it works. Right. So one reason it works, Matt, is, of course, you know, it's, it's a low level attack. Right. Uh, let's not forget, you know, you remember 2014 when the North Koreans entered uh, Sony pictures. Right. Uh, all of North Korea has as many email or Internet connections as probably the people in your household. You know, yet here's a country that's got basically little or no Internet attacking Sony entertainment. Right. The scion of uh, one of the most tech savvy companies in the world. Uh, how, and they crippled that company. They bring it to its knees uh, in 2014. Um, and how do they do it? Because, of course, it's a low-tech attack. It doesn't require a lot of technology. But you need to understand why it works. You need one victim. And in order to get to that one victim, you just need to understand human psychology, human behavior, and take advantage of it. And now, from the defender's point of view, where you and I said, we need to have started back in the 90s itself to try to figure out, you know, why do people fall for this? And we haven't done that. Right? At least not in the security world. We've done this in other parts of social science, uh, but we haven't done it in the security world. And that's what I've been advocating now uh, you know, for almost a decade now. Do you feel like the reason for that is that we're too tech heavy and too reliant upon tooling to fix this problem? Right. I mean, see, one of the problems is, um, you know, I am in a lot of security circles where, in fact, last week I, I was in some security conversation with a bunch of people and, and people talked about the fact that, uh, you know, technology has improved so much. However, our understanding of people has not. Yeah. And that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Because the problem here is that the science of humans goes back 100 years. The science of understanding computing technology is only 10 or 15 years old. In fact, we understand people a lot better than we understand technology. The problem is these are two completely different worlds. And they're stayed separate. Security folks are, are focused on security. And they begin from a tool out, right? It begins with the technology and then goes out. Um, the people, the human factors, as we like to call it, or the social cognitive scientists, we look at people and begin and end with people. Technology is a tool in between. It's a mediating tool. 
It's not the outcome of the process. The grip, the best example of this is, you know, you look at uh, some of these social engineering, uh, you know, attack diagrams where they tell you, okay, here's how the attack began and here's how the attack spread. And you will find, uh, you know, out of 10 slides, uh, one of them dedicated to how the attack came in. And the remaining nine will talk about the malware, the malware signature, this, the C2 servers, and how they figured out where the C2 servers located, and on and on and on into the complexity of the attack. Yeah, but the most important thing they'll, they'll miss, or they'll barely spend time talking about, is that it started off with someone clicking on a malicious link. Uh, in fact, you know, in my recent book, and I'm going to plug my book at this point, called The Weakest Link, uh, that I just published, I talk about this. I give you an example of you know, major crimes that happen, right? Uh, you, know, you talk about these major art heists that happen, where you, know, you look at the sophistication of how they attack and how they take down the systems and how they get in and do all these things and take away all the art and sell it in the black market. But the one thing we missed out is, how do the, guys, the bad guys enter? Well, they basically dressed up as cops and knocked on the door and someone opened the door. Um, and and the, the analogy, right, that metaphor works for security as well. Uh, be it the OPM hack, you know, which was at that time the biggest hack in the history of uh, security in the United States, uh, all the way to Colonial last year, or to you know the fact that uh, a lot of people haven't talked about it, Bing's entire source code from Microsoft was released in February by a hacking group, uh, again, using social engineering in 2022. Um, all of them use social engineering to get in. And, and the point is, again, you look at a company like Microsoft, oh, you would think everyone there is trained. Uh, they're experts at this. They're the technical minds we rely on for security. So, so, so that's, 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 that's one of these issues we don't talk about as much, which is, uh, you know, the security folks work on the tool end of the business and they start working on tools outwards and the human end work on humans with the tool in between as just like a little thing that's an irritant in between. So Arun, I'm I'm curious. Uh, follow up on that. In your book, you talk about how there was a, a phishing attack against an organization, and uh, after the attack, everyone was asked to change their password. And the IT department essentially sent out an email that looked almost identical to the phishing email, <laughs> asking everyone to log in and change their passwords. And I've received uh, emails from security conferences for honorariums asking for my bank details, which also looked very much like phishing emails. And I'm curious, it is sort of a two-part question. Number one is, should we be having some sort of security awareness training for security personnel to train them how not to look like phishing emails? And number two, what, what sort of effect do you think that this is having on users when it's almost impossible to sometimes to distinguish between the phishing emails and legitimate security emails? Right. Well, you know, let's go back to where this began, right? And 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 straight, sadly enough, this idea of sending an email to warn users, I just alluded to it, began in the late 90s with AOL. That's what AOL administrators did. They sent everybody an email saying, don't click on the email that's coming from the, because that, those are the bad guys. Um, and we do that now, and we still do that after spending millions and countless hours in security awareness training. And you're right, Matt. Um, security, here's one of the biggest problems we have, which, again, you know, I talk about in the book, um, is you have IT, the folks in IT security in general, who act like they're more prescient, that as if you know, they know what the user needs. Um, Yet they themselves get hacked and they use very poor, you know, to lack of a better word, 
security hygiene when it comes to communicating uh, with end users of what not to do. Uh, and this began, you know, even early on, you know, these are, you know, federal institutions like NIST are also to be blamed for some of this, right? Remember the, you know, change your password with long passwords every three months. I mean, that was a standard thing that we all followed. And, and this is one of the problems with security that people don't talk about. And this is a computing problem. What we start off, the world follows. So now all over the world, every three months, you had password expiries and password reset emails coming in. And before you knew it, the bad guys were starting to create. And those were the easiest emails to create because they went to the heart of what the bad guys wanted, which is identity. So when, and, and, and I have read the original articles on the basis of which NIST came up with that, um, that idea, um, that best practice, uh, and that, was, that had nothing to do with studying humans. It had to do with the complexity of you know, how it was to brute force passwords. And so you use a technology to come up with a solution for a technology without considering people. It's, it's indicative of what, you know, to Chris's previous question, you know, the problem in security. People are an afterthought. Uh, and if you don't consider people in the mix, then you have this problem where, you know, you have IT folks who are not trained in, in any element of understanding humans, uh, dealing with humans the way they would deal with any other, you know, patch, which is, hey, let's just send an email and tell everybody about it. And then, you know, here's an email that's coming in that looks just as bad as the one that came out. In fact, I've had examples, um, I, I believe after uh, one of the credit monitoring bureaus were hacked, uh, where the bad guys' email looked better and more formal than the email that was coming out from, you know, the credit monitoring agency. In fact, if I was, you know, a victim, I would have clicked on their email because that was how good it was. So. It's it's a mess. It's a mess. And, and, and we have to change this paradigm. And, and the way we change this paradigm is we go back to understanding people. We go back to studying the problem from the victim point of view and come up with best practices around that. So you mentioned NIST. And being that NIST is an industry framework that is commonly used by organizations today, um, is there a method to inject the human factor element into the, the current NIST framework, um, which in my mind would elevate the importance of it. I mean, is that even possible? I think it is. I think it is. And I think it is necessary, right? I, I know some of the folks at NIST who do work on the human factors end of security. Um, they don't have as much of a voice because, again, you know, security is seen as a technical problem, right? So the technical folks have the, the lion's share of voice. Now, if you look at some of the cybersecurity frameworks, and I've talked about this in my book um, as well, um, you know, the security, the, the cybersecurity framework, right, while, while intention hasn't thought through the human element at all, right? All they want you to do with the human element is do security awareness training. I mean, you can keep saying security awareness training in three different ways. But it's still security awareness training. You know, you can say, you know, level one awareness training, a level two and a level three. And there is no distinction in what they mean, which goes back to what I what I began with. What do you mean by security awareness training? What is it? Yeah. Right. There, there is no clarity on it, you know, and, and we can talk about that. Right. Which is pretty pivotal here, because at the end of the day, when it comes to human factors, the only answer we have is training. If there is a better answer out there. I have not heard it. Yeah. And, and often that training is reflective of compliance. 
Well, it comes down to compliance. When you mandate it, which is what has happened, right? So uh, it's become a mandatory thing, awareness training, at least with many other federal government and many state government institutions and even vendors who work with them. Um, the training is mandated, so they all do it. Um, and so every person, every IT person does it and every user endures it. Um, and, and you just kind of check that box and you say, hey, I did it. So if anything does happen, you can't turn around and say, hey, you didn't do that. So I think you bring up a really excellent point when you talk about what is security awareness training. And I'm almost wondering if this awareness uh, term is sort of interfering with a potential solution. And what I mean by that is, um, I think Perry Carpenter talks about this, just because I know, or just because I'm aware doesn't mean that I care. That's what he says. And um to tweak that a little bit, uh, your background is also cognitive psychology, correct? Uh, it partly, yes. Partly, okay, and is, as is mine. And so um, when I think of something like Pavlov's dogs, right, at the very beginning of behaviorism, where you're creating this sort of um, pair between, you know, a stimulus and a response, you're almost inducing a habit in that dog when you're creating, when you're ringing the bell and introducing that, that food smell, right, to cause them to salivate. And I'm almost wondering if, if there's a way that training could take a similar sort of behavioral level approach to training user habits. Because I know you and I have talked previously about how habits play such a serious role in vulnerability. I mean, we click on hyperlinks every single day without consequence. Right. which reinforces the fact that they're not unsafe. But there's that one in a hundred or one in a million times that it's not safe. And everything that the user is being trained is contradictory to that. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that about maybe if there's a way that we can train at a behavioral level. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I contend and I've got work on this uh, that I've done at various levels that are published in, in various peer-reviewed journals. Uh, the best way to break a bad habit is to replace it with a good habit, right? And and that is true for a lot of things, right? Um, but what would that good habit be is something we need to get to the bottom of, right? And and I think there is a lot of merit in trying to replace, let's say, and, and one of the mistakes we make before we, we, uh, we got on the, the, the answers there is that we tend to try to replace habits with thought. Right. So what we try to do is we say, hey, you know what? You have a bad habit. How about you think about this? Well, <laughs> the problem with the habit is that it overwhelms thinking, right? So when you're habitually clicking on something, let's say, I'll give you an example. You have a notification and you have this habit of, you know, hey, I don't want to have unread notifications. I, I, I like to make sure that I have no unread notifications. Uh, and you replace that with, you got to think about this. Be mindful. It's not going to work. Because habits are easier to trigger, right? That's why they are there. They make it easier for the mind to kind of get done with the task. Thinking is harder, right? It's an energy, it's an energy intensive process. So the best way to replace that habit is to replace it with a good habit. And what could that be? It could be as simple as taking away all notifications. So the system does not provide numerical notification counts. See, that's a system level way of trying to deal with the problem. Or at the individual level, you kind of, you know, separate their inboxes so they have less incoming notifications coming, right? Now, now, notice that each of these are at different levels of interventions, right? So we're either intervening at the individual micro level for the user or at the system level for everybody. 
right? What is the right answer? It depends on the person or the, you know, the user. And this is why you need those user level analyses, right? And, and habits, while they're important, right, are one element in it. Right? Let's not forget that there's a lot of things that we think about that we don't do and a lot of things that we do that we don't think about. So what about the things that we actually think about and didn't do? Is there any merit to those thoughts that actually would have revealed deception in those individuals? And we need to get to the bottom of that. So we need to get the entirety of this, right? So yes, you know, awareness, uh, you know, to Perry's point, yes, you know, awareness, and I have talked about this, right? Awareness is a very low bar, right? But there's more to this, right? There is the thoughts, the, the, the thoughts and the actions, and the actions that are mindless, which is the habits. So the, the reasoned actions, the reasoned thoughts, the thoughts leading to actions, the actions that are happening without thought. We need to get to the entirety of it. And that gives us the full picture. And, and what I do in my book is provide the, the model for actually measuring all of these. And, and, and if you want to get down into that path of discussing security awareness, I mean, there's a lot more than just the term, right? And, and I talk about this, uh, you know, I talk about five things that are pretty problematic right now, right? And the first of them is that uh, what is the standard for a security awareness test? Like, what is a phishing test? There's no standard for it, right? Here's a huge problem. You don't have a standard for a phishing test. We don't know whether uh, if I'm an IT person and I want everybody in my organization to pass the test, I make a test that's very obvious, right? A Nigerian phishing email right now from Nigeria are looking like those standard ones. Pretty much everybody figures it out. So uh, we have no standard right now to equate the, the hard ones from the easy ones from the not so easy ones you know, this is a visual standard. We don't have a standard right now. Um, the second one is uh, no one can tell why someone fails, right? We don't know why these people who either didn't click or clicked did what they did. We don't know the why. We surmise based on clicking. But like I said, clicking is a behavior. And it's, a, it's just one aspect of a reasoned action, right? What are the people who almost thought about it, but, you know, forgot to do it or had something else come in their way? And the people who, you know, inadvertently never click on anything. They just, you know, ignore them all. Right? Um, the, the third is, you know, there's a ceiling effect, right? Everybody who's ever done security awareness will tell you, hey, you know what? There is that percentage of people that always fall and Sometimes it's a different percent. And no one can explain why. It's just like one of those hidden, hidden truths of security awareness, right? This is, so this is beyond just the terminology. The, the fourth is, what's the standard for awareness? That's the terminological problem. Right? When is awareness enough? Can anybody tell me that? So, you know, let's take it to that next step. Uh, just because I, I'm aware, you know, to Pierre's phrase, uh, I'm paraphrasing what you just said, you know, uh, just because I'm aware doesn't mean I care. But let's say you do care. How much should I care? Like, what does care mean? Does it mean that, uh, you know, I'm an expert on C, uh, JavaScript? I mean, do I need to know how a C2 server works? Uh, do I need to know, you know, how to read, uh, you know, keyboard signatures to understand where, I, what is the standard? And no one knows, right? It's, it's a standard that somebody in IT sits back and says, well, these are the things you should minimally know. But how, where, where do we come up with that standard, right? So what are we training people to do? It's like, I'm training you to be a physician without really knowing the patient, without knowing what the standard of care is, what, without knowing what, you know, uh, an ideal blood pressure level or temperature level is. I don't even tell you what you should be measuring with the cuff. I just give you a bunch of equipment and say, go do it. And I'll tell you 10% of the people are, are going to fail these equipment completely, but you're still going to have to use it. I'm going to mandate it. 
right? And and the last point is creating security awareness because of all of this is is, is not a solution. It's a product. Right? It's something no one wants to talk about. It's a product. Right. Nothing wrong with capitalism. I love capitalism. We all are capitalists, right? But there are certain things that you know the market should not be doing. You know, one of that is you know things like psychics are also part of the that marketplace of capitalism, um, and people spend millions of dollars on that. Uh, astrology, you know, and bad science. You know, these are the three things I don't think the market does well. Right. This is where people like you and I, you know, all of us come in, where we have to say, wait a minute, hey, we got to think this through and say, uh, is this bad science? Um, it's not bad science. It's a very poor science. Yeah. Well, and to your point about the blood pressure cuff, and it comes to your last point as well, is even if you don't know what to do with that cuff, you'll still come up with a number. Absolutely. Have you seen Have you seen those ghost hunter shows? I mean, there's a gazillion of them walking around with all kinds of equipment. They have no clue what it is, but it goes off and they quickly jump to quick conclusions. It's like, wow, you know. How is it that they, these equipment work? Because no one has any clue how these things are supposed to work. There's no question on tolerances. There's no, this, that's pseudoscience, right? And we know it. All of us know it. But when it comes to you know, things like security awareness, most people don't even know because it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's technical and, you know, you keep moving the goalpost and, and no one really tells you the insights of what's going on. Uh, and, and the vendors kind of dictate the ceiling effects. Uh, you know, I've had these meetings with, with organizations where I'll come and say, you know, you know, they'll, they'll have some vendor come and tell them, oh, you know, you're supposed to get in your first baseline test about a 10% victim rate. Where did that number come from? <laughs> it came from us. Well, you know, that's your your blood pressure monitor, basically, you know, the guy saying, trust me on the numbers. Yeah, that's a uh, very interesting points. And uh, these are points I don't hear people bringing up enough in the security community, but I think you're spot on. Agreed. Yeah. And you mentioned um, changing habits. And, and I think that end users change habits or they develop habits in different ways. Um, what is your take on an organization forcing habits via disciplinary action? And, and does that work? Because I've seen it before where, you know, an organization will use scare tactics or threaten these harsh repercussions for an end user failing a phishing test consecutively over and over again. And I've even seen it go as far as termination. Have you seen this actually work in, in a situation or do you feel like that's overkill that these organizations are just approaching this entirely in the wrong way? I, absolutely. You know, I, I have an anecdotal story about this and I, 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 I write about this in my book. Um, there's a company, you know, a name that I will not name uh, in the federal government an agency in the federal government that was doing exactly this. Right. Uh, and their numbers were down to less than 1%. Right. They had these, you know, threats and stuff that they would do where they would, you know, scare their employees big time. Right. And, and just imagine being somebody working in this company, falling for a test that has no standard. Right. I mean, so there could be a very difficult phishing attack, it could be a very lame one. Who knows? Right. Um, and, and you don't know when they're coming. Right. So it could be, and, and this uh, particular organization, uh, had already done this for two years. So they had done many tests over a period of two years. They were using a security awareness package and all that stuff. And, you know, the CISO, uh, you know, saw one of my talks uh, and, and called me in and he said, hey, you know, I got a little bit of a problem. I have the ceiling effect um, where we have a few percent of people 
who are constantly falling. And, and, you know, since you talk a big talk, why don't you come and tell me why this few percent is, is falling? And I, I love the fact that, you know, he's a super open-minded guy, very cool. You know, really, you know, I, I met so many cool people as I've been doing this, the, the research for my book and all the security work that I've done. You know, people really want to know that everybody, you know, who is in security, they really want to get to the bottom of it. Uh, they know that there's something uh, inherently problematic in the models that they're working with. Um, and so uh, my usual thing is that, listen, you know, I'm willing to come and check and see, do a sort of an audit. However, uh, I got to do the, the, the phishing attack. I'm going to design it, right? You can design it. And so I designed a phishing attack um, using some parameters that I talk about in my book. I, I, I kind of give you the model of how you want to think about a good phishing attack whatever that word good is, it's qualified in that book. Um, and I sent that attack, and you won't believe it, um, within 24 hours, I mean, the phishing attack success, the success rate, the victimization rate, as in click-throughs, were five times what they had experienced. Now, what was going on here, right? So we did a follow-up survey, and we talked to a lot of people. You know, we guaranteed anonymity, and we talked to people. And, and first is, you know, most of these guys had figured out what those attacks that were internal look like. They figured it out. That's why they were beating their own tests. And the second thing that they were doing was they were telling each other about it. And the third thing people were doing was they were not opening their emails on many days of the week when they were like, okay, you know what? Let's just wait for two days. If it's a phishing attack, it's not going to come back. Yeah. See, they figured it out. We're, we're, you know, you start punishing people uh, for low-level behavior that has no, you know, they can basically, if you're working in a certain organization, you can say, you know what, I'm not going to check my email. I'm going to use a private email for the more important work that I have. And you see this in a lot of organizations. Much of this is never accounted for in any awareness exercise. So, you know, so these ideas of, hey, you know, somebody talked about court-martialing people. I was like, wow, that's ridiculous. You know, let's add more insult to the fact that we don't understand our patient and let's scream at them even more. Um, it is blame them for the problem because we have never figured them out yet. Uh, and that's the problem, right? Uh, if, 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 the, if the pill doesn't work, you keep giving them more. And then if they, don't, if they take all of it and still continue to be sick, then we tell them it's your fault. Now you're fired. It doesn't work. Um, I think we need to get to basics. Let's understand our patient and let's build solutions that actually work and they don't have to be dramatic. They don't have to be more training. They don't have to be more and more of these fishing exercises. We do need them. I'm not saying let's throw the baby out with that, with the bathwater here, uh, but we can do this to the people who actually need it. We can do it using attacks that actually are relevant and that we can actually measure the difficulty level of. And then we can do it in a manner in which we can get to the problem. If it's a habitual problem, let's treat the habit. If it's a cognitive issue, let's go to the cognition uh, and let's do it and, and solve it because we need to, right? We can't still be sending out emails 25 years after AOL. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, do you feel like we need to involve more psychologists and professionals in that field into security? You know, it's unheard of to walk into an organization and see an end user psychologist, and I'm using that in air quotes, but you know, right. it's not something embedded within existing training. It's not embedded in typical agendas within an organization. So do you feel like that could possibly be a step in the right direction? It is a step in the right direction, right? Part of the problem is that what we're dealing with, 
let's be so. So here's the issue, right? So when you ask a any IT person, you know, what's a computer? You know, it's it's a material, uh, it's software, it's hardware. But really, what is a computing system today, right? Mm-hmm. What a computing system is is a cognitive system, right? It is a cognitive system, right? We have all accepted, and and the strange thing about this cognitive system, the reason we talk about it, and the reason it's important. It's because unlike other, so language is a cognitive system, right? It's a way we make sense of the world and we talk to each other, right? But language takes a long time to evolve and a long time to spread, right? Um, it doesn't happen very quickly. You know, even, you know, even today, we still teach certain languages like English, for instance, is not a global language. We go to different parts of the world and teach English, right? Um, because we want the cognitive system to be universal to some extent, so it becomes easier to relate, easier to communicate, and so on and so forth. But if you look at computing, back in the 70s and 80s, in the 90s, I remember there were textbooks that I was learning of where there was one chapter dedicated to MIS, where they were still trying to tell us to use computing, the big benefits of computing. Today, it's everywhere. And as a cognitive system, Everywhere, whether you're in Russia right now or, you know, in Botswana, I mean, the computing system that has a mail program that's got the button send, sends email. There's a universality to this. So not only is it a cognitive system, it's a dominant cognitive system. It's now dominating essentially how we look at the world. So much so that if you look at certain mail apps on your phone or your iPads and so on, on your your, uh, tablets and so on and so forth, they don't even have, you know, remember the old days and other computer programs would have a file button and the icon would tell you exactly what each GUI meant. Yeah. There are programs, if you go on, on your, on your, on your tablets and you know, your phones, most of them are like minor icons. Some of them don't even have icons. They just know, you know where to touch. It's, it's so mindlessly done that the cognitive system is so entrenched in the way we think and the way we act online in these virtual surfaces. That it behooves us to say, okay, this is a kind of a system at work. How come we don't even understand how it works in the individual, within the mind of that person? Because if you want to solve these attacks, these attacks are not happening at the material level. They're happening at that virtual cognitive level. So this is why the solution is to incorporate that understanding. We got to study those people at that cognitive level. And, and, And it doesn't, of course, it's not just limited to, you know, computing or security. This permeates everything we do, right? Um, you know, it would electric cars today be the way they are if not for computers? Not just for the, for the device itself, not, for, not just for the computing power of, you know, self-driving cars or whatever we have promised, but also how we have designed them. Uh, you know, Tesla, for instance, uh, you know, openly talks about how impressed they were and how much they are designed like Apple, right? How Steve Jobs' you know, design philosophies influenced them. Remember, the early... Uh, EVs that were in the 90s had removable batteries. Now the new ones don't. And I wonder if Apple didn't come in between with iPhones, which had non-removable batteries, non-user serviceable batteries, would Teslas have them? You don't know. See, because this is what cognitive systems do, right? I mean, they, they change, they infect the way you think, and they, that becomes the framework. The GUI framework is the framework with which we see the world. So, so understanding this, in that, you know, at the psychological, social, and psychological and behavioral level for the, for the individual is, is imperative if you want to ever understand what's going on all over the world. And this is why you can have an attack that you can use anywhere in the world. Right? That's why you see social engineering everywhere. You see an Amazon attack, you create a, an exploit uh, that can, you know, let's say, recreate an Amazon web page. You can use this anywhere in the world. Why? Because as a system, it's used everywhere. That's um, 
those are very interesting points. And um, you, you talk about studying these user groups and studying these interfaces. And in your book, you talk about uh, academia's incentive to maximize originality. Uh, but this can come at a cost, right? And that cost is sometimes relevance to the real world problems. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have industry that's developing a product, but not necessarily a solution. And I'm curious what um, your perspective is on how we might be able to navigate between these two uh, poles. Right. And, and uh, it's, it's a great point. It's, it's something I, 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 I kind of, thought a lot deeply about as I, you know, eventually ended up leaving academia. And, and one of the reasons for that was because, you know, I, I got to go back to uh, the 1950s, um, you know, in the 1950s, 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, much of the social science research and research in general that was coming out used to be funded by, by, by the armed forces, by the Navy, by the military. You know, there's a great study that, um, that I began my career working with a bunch of sociologists who trained me, and then I moved to psychology, and then I moved to the cognitive side of, of, of users, right? So I kind of made this transition. But there's a great sociological study that was done in the 1950s, which you could probably never do today, where uh, you know, the U.S. Air Force uh, used a plane. This happened in Washington State. Uh, and they used a plane to drop leaflets on towns, okay? And the idea was to study, you know, and, and this was back when, you know, the Korean War had happened and the U.S. Air Force had dropped about a billion such leaflets, propaganda leaflets in Korea. Um, the Second World War, the Allies had dropped five billion such papers, but nobody knew the effectiveness of these things, right? So the U.S. Air Force funded the study to do it in Washington State. So they took a bunch of towns and they flew over it with these planes and dropped leaflets over a two to three day period. It's a real cool study from an academic point of view. I remember academic hat. I get excited about this kind of studies, right? Uh, imagine the resources that went into this. Imagine what it takes to actually fly a plane over a town, litter it with paper, and, you know, and then do surveys to say, hey, who found this paper? What do they do with it? And they did these follow-ups. And, and, and in a sense, some of those research is what contributed to our understanding of uh, you know, champions, for instance, you know, something we do in the security world, we talk about, you know, security champions. Well, a lot of the language of what is called as opinion leadership comes from some of this original work from the 1950s and 40s, funded by the by the armed forces. See, now and today, and the reason I'm talking about academia is back then to do good academic work, you needed a lot of funding, and, and, and the United States government funded this, usually the armed forces, the war efforts funded this, be it the nuclear bomb, uh, be it even the social science studies. You know, today, a lot of that work happens in industry, right? If you want to work on big data and you're not working for, let's say, Google or AWS or what have you, uh, what big data do you really have that's worth looking at? A lot of that big quality work has moved to organizations that are either directly related or affiliated with the big you know, Silicon Valley corporations or they're like the Ivy League, the top tier, you know, the Stanfords of the world, who have actual direct access to that same data. So if you're anywhere else in academia, the data quality that you have access to, if you're not, let's say, in security, let's say you're doing security awareness, but what's the data that you have, right? And so part of what has happened with academia is a lot of that, that thinking, the, the good data to do the good work, to do this large-scale work, has moved into industry has moved into Silicon Valley, has moved into the tech sector. 
And so a lot of the people I know, many of my students, they all moved into the tech sector to get jobs because that's where all the innovation is happening. And a lot of that innovation is very, you know, means oriented and ends oriented. Of course, you know, Google's got, you saw what happened with your AI team. They fired half the AI team when the data didn't play out to be the way they wanted to. And that's the way it works in industry, right? They have a reason that you're hiring. In the meantime, what do you do in academia when you don't have access to this kind of data? If you don't have that access to security awareness or, you know, the big data that you need to do this high quality work, well, you start doing marginal work that uh, basically gets you publications. So, of course, there's a reason that a lot of this work is incremental or really just based on, you know, just trying to recreate something and replicate something and, and call it something new. Uh, because one, they don't have the access that they used to have. Even with funding, Facebook is not going to give you access to their data, period. Nor is Google, nor is AWS, nor is Apple. Um, so, you know, NSF funding, which used to be, you know, the requirement to get access to big data, doesn't exist anymore, right? You have funding, but it's not going to give you access, right? Uh, so a lot of that move away is the reason academia has kind of lagged and is a lag right now or, you know, they lag behind when it comes to tech innovation. Uh, on the other hand, you have industry that's doing what it's doing because, hey, you know, they want to move ahead. It's it's the market at play. And how do you bridge this too? And I think that's where the challenge is, right? It's, it's very hard to bridge these two because, uh, you know, you have a, a, a different set of motivators for both of them. Yeah, no, I think that's a, an excellent answer. And um, it's something that I've struggled with also. Um, Having been in academia recently and then just transitioned to industry, I'm finding very much the same thing. Right. But you'll notice that a lot of the good data right now, if you really, let's you know, go back to security awareness, for instance, or, or even just cybersecurity in general. A lot of that really good data is with the corporations. If you want to study VPNs right now and, and the quality of use and all of that, you are better off working with one of the VPN providers. Now, if you're in academia, no one's going to give you access to this. I mean, I tried this as an academic a decade ago to get access to security awareness programs directly, to work with them directly. And I was shut off before, you know, I, I said hello. And I have email trails of conversations where they first said yes, and then they realized I was an academic and shut the doors quickly because no one wants to be scrutinized at the end of the day, right? I mean, this is these are for-profit companies, and rightfully so. You know, I don't blame them for what they did. Uh, but the point is, uh, well, that's where the quality problem comes. So what is academia churning out today then, right? So if you're a social cognitive scientist sitting in academia who's not in one of these Ivy League schools or doesn't have access uh, not you know, to that kind of data, all you're doing is you know, you're replicating someone else's work or you're creating work that's essentially meaningless because you have no relevance or perspective uh, because you really don't have that real-world data to make it relevant. I guess on the other side, you do have industry, which is interested in creating products and not necessarily solutions. Right. And so, I, yeah, it definitely seems like a rock and a hard place sort of conundrum because uh, academia lacks access to relevant data, but industry lacks motivation to solve the problem sometimes, it seems like. Right. And and and, and, and to your point, uh, Matt, you know, in the security world, it's even worse, right? Because part of the problem that happens in security, so, so in general, you know, the Silicon Valley guys, the IT guys are not going to give you access to data because they're going to say, well, this is IP protected. But in the security world, there's one more layer, right? There's one more excuse. It's like, oh, we don't want the bad guys to get access to it. So that becomes your second reason to shut the door even tighter. So in case there are any gaps in it, you can always say, hey, we don't want the bad guys to get access to it. So we can't give it to the good guys either. 
right? So, so basically everything is shrouded in secrecy. And then you wonder why it is that, you know, 25 years after AOL, we're still doing the same thing we used to do 25 years ago, because that was the most open and obvious thing everybody did. Everything else is shrouded in secrecy. But this, this does seem like a solvable problem because there are areas of threat intelligence where security um, different companies have started sharing data to, to limited extents, right? right. Uh, anonymized and, and so forth. And I wonder, I wonder why that hasn't translated to human-related security data. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, think, I think there needs to be more of that. I think there needs to be more of not just sharing threat intelligence. I think part of threat intelligence sharing was, was forced to some extent and to some extent incentivized with uh, liability reform, right? But we got to do the same thing for human, right? There's actually no incentive for doing it right now, so they're not going to do it, right? You have to either incentivize it or you have to kind of force this. There's only two things that we can do. Either you kind of sweeten the pot and say, hey, here, share your data, or you say, hey, share your data or else. And, and neither of that happens in the human end. So we still don't know what it is. Do you think that that necessarily has to be through governmental regulation? Or do you think that the insurance industry might be able to incentivize some of this? I think the insurance industry ha- holds the key to this. You know, I, th- I don't think we can regulate our way into this. I think there's enough. It's already cost enough, right? So, for instance, if you look at breach notification laws, uh, I mean, it has created it has brought lawyers into the mix, right? So the moment you kind of come up with a regulatory framework, uh, what happens is you have a bunch of corporate lawyers who jump in. And so if you look at how notification happens today, it happens exactly to the letter of the law rather than its intent. And this is going to happen the moment you come up with the regulation. Everybody will comply with the letter of the law rather than its intent. Its intent was meant to inform us uh, so we were prepared, but basically what has happened is they basically will tell you the bare minimum of what happened and then, and what's the solution to all of this? They'll throw some, uh, you know, credit monitoring and that's about it. So by now everybody's got their credit monitored, right? I bet you every one of us has received some, you know, breach notification and have got, you know, I have kids who are six and 13 and they all have credit monitoring for free because all of their data has been stolen. Uh, but that's the extent of it. Uh, and 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 the the better way to do this would have been to invert that and just give everybody threat monitoring credit monitoring to begin with for free, take away the incentive, and give it as part of you know our our insurance framework. Just, just imagine what would have happened if we did that. Let's uh, let's shift to your book for a moment, The Weakest Link, where you certainly talk about this topic in more depth. You know, I'm curious to hear about your process for deciding to write this book. And I mean, you know, I understand the concept for it, but what was the driving force for you to put it down on paper? Well, see, part of it was just a lot of frustration, right? It is this, I've been hearing these complaints about not, of of us not understanding people or that people were the problem in so many security meetings. Uh, and I still see it, right? There's still, you know, you go on social media, on LinkedIn, for instance, and there's these conversations and security groups that I belong to, but our lack of understanding of people. And uh, if only, you know, people would, you know, step up and users would step up and on and on and on it went. That, and, and I was working with individual companies. I haven't worked with many of them because I can't scale my work that easily. Um, and, you know, I got to a point where I said, wait a minute, and there's this, you know, every time I go to Black Hat, I have all these emails and 
from people asking me for the methodology and measurement and on and on it goes. And, and I said, Hey, you know, rather than, you know, keep emailing everybody one at a time and convincing one person at a time, why don't I just put it all in the book and, and, and put it out there. So, and this is more, if you notice the, the book, the weakest link is, is, is kind of written for the security community. It's not written for an end user. It's written for the security community to take it and say, hey, you know, here's a way to think about users. Here's the science on users simply put together so we, we can at least understand what we know about users, and we know a lot. Uh, and and there's, there's, there's a lot of strategies here on how you could incorporate this or even think about the inadequacy of what your you know, awareness programs are or your cyber hygiene programs are, and what do we mean by all of that? How do we measure these things? And why do we measure these things? So I wanted to put that all into one cogent, one kind of, you know, reference point rather than, you know, sending people to various papers of mine that were hidden behind paywalls that I don't control. Um, let's put it behind one little book and, and, and say, hey, go, you know, here's the reference for it. That was it. So, so the idea was, you know, coming out of this frustration of trying to, you know, go and talk in security meetings about wanting to study humans. In 10 minutes where, you know, they were like, okay, then we got, you know, 15 other security folks talking about C2 servers and, and zero trust and on and on and on the terminologies go. I said, hey, well, how about, you know, I come in five minutes, talk about my book and let you read it. If you're interested, then you'd get to it. And you mentioned the security community. So it doesn't sound like to me that this was written with any particular individual in mind. So anyone in the organization can, can really pick this up and take something away from it. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't want to write to the end users. I want to write to the physician, right? So it's like writing to the physicians, whoever that is. So it could be, you could be the, the CMO of the hospital, you know, to use that analogy of medicine, uh, who's dealing with users, right? All the way to the physician at the bedside or the nurse who's actually dealing with the, phys- the patient one-on-one, right? Every one of them can take this book and understand their patient, in this case, the patient being the user. One of the things that I noticed about your book early on that's very different than other, um, I guess, similar genre books that I've read is that you spend um, one or two chapters talking about the criminal community and kind of how that evolved and propagated. And I'm curious in in the okay, so we've seen con artists in the early 20th century, right? We had the gentleman that sold the Brooklyn Bridge repeatedly, and you talked about the evolution of 419 scams. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what your perspective is on how that community helps the scams themselves evolve. I mean, are these people comparing notes and learning from that? Or how, how does that help the attackers become better at what they do? Absolutely. Look, you know, the, 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 the attackers. So, you know, I, I talk about four things, right? What, what creates social engineering and what kind of foments social engineering, right? One of it is the, is what I call the information environment, right? The information environment in which we exist, and we alluded to some of this earlier, right? Is that companies basically, you know, are, are complying and they're complying with regulation. So they do what is required by the letter of the law. That's about it. They share data based on just what they need to, not to help anyone, but to make sure that they don't get sued or they don't get some penalty from the federal government or the state government, right? So there's a lot of concealing data that happens in the information environment from organizational perspective, right? So you can have a ransomware attack, and this is happening even as we speak, right? You'll have a ransomware attack in one town on one street, and the same ransomware attack will hit the next town on the other street. Um, 
without one telling the other, about five months later, you'll find out it was the same malware that was just going around in circles. So why is that, right? One of the reasons is we're all trying to play, you know, the data close to our heart. These guys don't have to. They can learn from each other. They can teach each other. Um, and they can be open about it. So, for instance, you know, there are phishing kits. You know, APWG did this report by the Anti-Phishing Working Group of full phishing kits that are available from, you know, syndicates that are out there. Black Access, I think one of these syndicates, and I, I talked about it in my book, which sell a full phishing kit. So all you need to do or any one bad guy out there needs to do is download the thing, pay a license fee, and essentially use it like software. You know, it, it's basically a, a, a hack-as-service model. Uh, and this is happening everywhere, right? India is an epicenter for a lot of phone-based scams and tech support scams, right? They've had a huge, you know, vendor market. And that vendor market, when it lost a lot of the back office processing business, turned into fishers and hackers and, and vishers and smishers and all the terminologies that are out there for social engineering. And they're very good at it because they use VOIP and go, you know, across the world. They're responsible for essentially every IRS scam that's there in the United States. Every one of them. And I was working with some groups in, in, uh, in the security folks in some of our mobile service providers, and the number of calls that they were fielding were in the millions coming from these locations. Uh, and, and I'm talking about money that is, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars that these companies were making per month that they were now channeling back into R&D. These are run like corporates. So, you know, our view of this hacker, you know, sitting with a hoodie in some basement or some Starbucks trying to hack people is not at all what it is. These guys are, you know, corporate entities that are training each other, uh, learning from each other, uh, improving the vectors, downloading malware, buying malware, creating malware, monetizing it. You know, it's unrestricted. Right. And you can spend a lot of time creating an exploit on, let's say, an iPhone, as we saw with. You know, secure, and, and, and it's not just the bad guys, right? Let's be very honest. There are uh, nation states that will pay for this. There's law enforcement that will pay for this. You know, I read about you know, law enforcement, the FBI, all these gr- groups paying to, you know, break into phones because, oh, you know, a bad guy had it. But once you go down that road, you know, you're opening it up for other law enforcement agencies to start doing it. And so uh, there's an ecosystem of support for, for this kind of stuff. Whereas when you're a corporate, an organization, you know, the, the, the for-profit entity in the United States, let's say a hospital in, in where I am in New York, hey, you know, they, they had a huge ransomware attack. Who do they turn to? Right? We still don't know what happened there. The data's still not been released. And so, uh, yeah, that's a huge problem. So they has a, there's a knowledge advantage. There's an information advantage. There's an incentive framework. The incentive is there. It's in, you know, uh, the hackers get a lot of street cred for this. Uh, and some of these hackers, and just imagine the age of the hackers who are doing this, right? Um, you know, I, I, I dedicated a, a section of my book to talk about the fact that most social engineering attacks are done by teenagers, including the one that just recently in January hacked into Microsoft and, saw, and stole and released uh, Bing's source code. They're like teens from UK. You know, Apple was hacked by some kid in Australia. And these are, you know, let's, let's be honest, Apple and Microsoft, they sure are training their guys with security awareness. The gold standard, I'm sure they're like, they're, they're you know, uh, yelling at these guys for any mistakes they make. I'm sure the IT is on top of everything that they click on. Yet they got hacked by social engineering attacks done by kids. And, and the incentive was with these kids. Right? They could get away with it. They got a lot of street cred from that. Their group got bigger. They attracted more people. They made money. 
They probably got contracts from some bad, you know, agencies out there. You know, if you remember the Russians, when they hacked into the DNC, they used a kid in, 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 in Canada, a young kid, 19-year-old kid, to do some of the social engineering attacks on the DNC operatives. And this guy, this kid was making big money. He was driving an Aston Martin, lived in a million-dollar house, like 17 and 18. Like, so, so the incentive was there. Whereas, you know, if you're an IT guy working in a company, you take home, you take home your salary and you get yelled at whenever there's, a, there's anything that goes wrong. I mean, I, what an untenable position to be in. So, so in a way, the book tries to address IT security, you know, from that perspective saying, hey, you know, we've not equipped them with anything either. So if you're an IT guy right now, if you're a security guy, if you're a seesaw out there, but there really isn't anything to equip you. I mean, everybody has, you know, lots of acronyms in their titles lots of certifications, but it's still not equipping you to ensure that your organization and its people are resilient. Right? And that's unfair. I think that's very unfair. We're putting them in a very unfair position. So if you're a CEO out there, and, you know, and this happened in Europe quite a bit, where you know, companies that got hacked, the CEOs were personally held liable. Personally. And I was like, wow, that, that creates a precedent. And that's unfair too. So, so we need to be, we need to equip them as, you know, cognitive, social uh, psychologists and what have you. We need to equip that group with the knowledge necessary so their careers can prosper. You know, so there is, this, this is, this is something that can benefit a lot of that community. That is our community, the good guys out there. Yeah, for sure. For the listeners that are, are hearing this right now, where can you direct them to find your book? Is it in stores? Is it strictly online? Can you point us to a link where, uh, where we can purchase it today? Yep. So, so the book is called The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. It's published by MIT Press. It's available at every online store as well as offline. You can get physical copies of the book. Or you can buy it on Amazon, you can buy it on Barnes and Nobles, you can buy it on Walmart, you can buy it at Target online, so the digital copies are available. You can buy it offline. We already sold out the book in the UK. Uh, there's another fresh group of you know, books coming in. Uh, so in parts of Asia, again, I got emails saying we sold out the book. So it's doing really well, touch wood, but I hope that it gets to all the right hands. You know? And I think that's, that's the impetus here. The, the, the effort here is to make sure that it gets to enough of those right people who can actually implement it. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, the, the merit is in that transfer of knowledge. If we can achieve that, a uh, modicum of that change where we say, hey, you know, people start rethinking their security protocols, their awareness programs, their hygiene programs, uh, and considering these th- initiatives, th- that itself, you know, implementation is like a, you know, the next stage. But if they can start considering it, rethinking it, and saying, hey, addressing it as a cognitive issue, I think we would have gone very far yeah. And congratulations on the success of the book thus far. Um, I want to ask you, you know, as end users embed this into their routine, um, is it possible for users to transfer this behavior from the corporate world into their personal life and, and have that, you know, psychological perspective when they're at a bar, for instance, or or within another situation where they need to be cognizant and aware of these social engineering attacks outside of the, the confines of business? Well, the answer is yes. And that's another issue that we're dealing with, right? We think of the employee as just a user in an organization. Yeah. But the bad guys don't think that way. 
It's just the IT folks, the security folks, we look at it and say, oh, here's a user in the organization using a device or a series of devices or a workstation or what have you. But the bad guys are not thinking about it that way at all. They're unencumbered by any of these ring fences that we think we have around them. So, you know, yes, good habits can translate out, but so can bad habits. So can a hack, right? So can the fact that you have data stolen at one level be used to infiltrate you at another level. So if I can steal something from you, let's say from your Wi-Fi password at home, Mm -hmm. or, you know, some access gateway that I have to get into a system there, I can infiltrate your work device that you bring to home or that you use from home. Right? We never consider this, right? And we never consider the scale of the operations at the back end when it comes to some of these organizations. So if you remember, I think last year or the year before, um, you, know, you know, I was I was talking about this in Voice of America, where you know we had these, these this company in China that had aggregated data from various breaches of Americans and people from different parts of the world. And what they had done was they had taken data sets that they had found in all these different breaches with passwords, emails, preferences of not just the individual, but of his family or her family, spouses, friends, relatives. And they were building that data set out. And the data set was basically, it was a Chinese military sponsored program where what they had done was, and I'm sure a lot of that opium data ended up there too, where, you know, they had built these massive databases based on answers to security questions, which I think are ridiculous, right? As, as, a, as a security protocol, I think security questions knowledge questions are the worst thing you can do because once they're hacked, I can repudiate it. I can't change my mother's maiden name if I put it in there. And once it's hacked, it's over, right? And we do a lot of these really bad practices and they had answers to all of this in this huge, vast, mineable data set. I, 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 I believe the name of that agency was, a uh, company was Zinua. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but uh, out of China. And so we, we never consider how this data can be used, right? So uh, this earlier, as I was promoting the book, I put together, I I have this um, concept of degrees, right? When I say, how many degrees separate you or I from a hacker, right? Rather than thinking about the user as somebody who works at a company who uses a device, which is how we think about it, right? One way to think about people is to think about them as how many degrees separate you or I from a hacker, from a bad guy, right? And how do you quantify that? So we came up with a quiz. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, not entirely scientific because the data in it is still being aggregated. But the idea here was to say, you know, if I take someone like, let's say, Matt, how many degrees do I need to get to if I was a bad guy to get to some data set of Matt that would give me access to his device? Right? So each step that I have to take is a degree. Right? So I'm using the word degree. Remember the... Remember that um, yeah, seven degrees uh, separating six you? Degrees of Kevin six Bacon. degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So it was the same concept, but I'm using degrees. Now remember, six degrees comes from, you know, Duncan Watts' small world research, right? So this is research that said how, you know, basically what, what they did back in the 70s, I believe, uh, is it's a, it's, a, it's a Harvard study where what they did is they asked people, random people in Wichita and Kansas and so on and so forth. To, they gave them a sheet of paper and a package and they said, okay, fine, drop this to another person that they didn't know. And what they found was most people required around five or six other intermediaries. Like they'd go to the post office to find someone, to find someone, to find someone. Package had to be taken hand to hand. You couldn't give it to a, to a mail carrier. Now, so you take that same concept from the hacker's point of view and say, okay, how many steps does it take for a hacker to get to Matt's laptop? Right? And so each is a degree. 
So we created a quiz. And I, in fact, I'll send you a link to the quiz. The quiz is still available. I, of course, the link, it also links up to my book. It's on LinkedIn, but I'll send you the quiz link. And the idea here was, you know, the fewer the degrees, the easier it is for the hacker to get to you. And some of the things that define it is, has some data of yours been stolen already? Because that's a degree, right? That's a huge step. Because if you already have a degree of data out there, a modicum of data out there, I already have some information about you that you don't know I have, or you forgot that I have. Because, you know, if you think of something like OPM in Matt's case, I mean, the, the depth of that data is just phenomenal, right? It, it's unbelievable how much data they have. And that got stolen. So, of course, it's also what kind of data got stolen. That adds a degree. And so you can count the number of degrees separating you from the bad guys. And, and that gives you a different way of thinking about vulnerability, right? So we can think about, we can't ring fence everybody the same way, but the people who are very, very close to the hacker, where the hacker is just like one degree away from you, this is a person that needs to do a lot of things to safeguard his or her data, right? So these protections have to be much more much more in-depth, and they have to permeate not just the work environment, but maybe even their household environment. Or wherever they go, you know, they go to the bar with their laptop, for instance. Well, that's something we need to make sure that, you know, we are ring-fenced that, you know, you use a, you know, a authentication key, for instance, a physical token if we have to, and, and, and do things that you may not do if you were someone who was, let's say, four degrees away from a hack. Yeah. Right? yeah. But this is just, I mean, a different way of thinking about it. So we're basically changing that paradigm of where we think of a device as the problem and the device as the conduit and the user is just somebody who's just another one of those things in a mix. So right now, if you look at how you know users are constructed in the security literature, we look at software, we look at hardware, we look at user, and we give each of them the same amount of value. In fact, the user is given even less value. Right, we're more focused on software than we're most focused on, you know, RAM leakages for like DRAMs and stuff. So that's a hardware that we focus on. We focus a lot on software, code integrity, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to user, there's just like one little thing we do: security awareness. Then we're done, right? So here we kind of change that around and look at the user in terms of degrees of separation. Interesting. Right, just a way to think about it. Right. So, so these are different ways to say, you know, what is vulnerability at the user level. Right? Is it just a phishing test that we have to do all the time? Is that the only thing that we have? Not necessarily. We have other ways of doing this. And if you ask anybody right now, they don't know what it is. Yeah, very interesting perspective. Um, so you mentioned you're based in the New York area, correct? Yes, Buffalo, New York. Do you have any cool bars in the Buffalo area? Like anywhere unique that you would you know, direct outsiders like myself if I were in town? I would send you to, we have a ton of microbreweries. I'm sure it's the same everywhere now, but you know, we have a lot of local breweries that have opened up. I love local breweries just because it's, hey, it's our water, right? So I go to a bar called Resurgence, which is a microbrewery around here, highly recommended. And of course, hey, when you're in Buffalo, you got to go to Anchor Bar for the wings. Okay. Not for the bar, but for the wings, because that's where they invented chicken wings. Is that the actual venue where they invented it? This is the actual venue where the chicken wings were invented. Interesting. Okay. It's an anchor bar in Buffalo, New York. It's about two miles south of where I am. Uh, and I got to tell you, their wings, I, I've had wings. So, so, you know, one of the things we do in Buffalo is wherever we go, we try their wings just to see, you know, hey, is there anybody else who can do this right? I got to tell you, no one does it as well as we do. Nobody. And I'm telling you, I've gone, I've gone everywhere you know, around the world and had wings. I think the only country that even does wings close, forget the cities in the United States, 
it's not like buffalo wings, but I'll give them a lot of points as the Korean wings. I mean, they're the only guys who can do wings that are crispy and different. And you can say, hey, these are wings I can have with bar food. But other than that, we do wings better than anybody else does. You know, buffalo wings, we have it with blue cheese. Anchor Bar is the one who, you know, they created it right there. They, they you know, uh, the, the, the woman who created it, who passed away, I think the family still owns the bar. Uh, it's called Anchor Bar. Uh, and, and, and that's the, the history of wings begins in Buffalo, New York. We, we right. sell more wings and eat more wings than I think anybody else does in the United States with blue cheese. Well, I can put down, I can put down some wings, but you're telling me like the wing stop down the street from me. It doesn't, doesn't compare. compare. Okay. Doesn't compare. Not, nor does Buffalo wild wings, which has nothing to do with <laughs> Buffalo. Uh, it's a chain. <laughs> I believe it's based on Ohio. It's not got anything to do with Buffalo. And you go blue cheese, Anchor right? Bar, you go blue cheese, not ranch. We go blue cheese. Okay. Yes. We go blue cheese. And that's the thing, you know, when, when we go around and we eat it with ranch and we, I was in Indiana for a while and they had you know, wings with ranch. It's like, what is this? And, and it's, it's different. I mean, once you get used to Buffalo wings with, with, with blue cheese, you don't turn back from that. And it's wing season. It's about to begin, right? Football season begins in a week. It's always wing season here, but football season begins in a week. Uh, Resurgence is something I would, I would highly recommend. It's, it's a local microbrewery, one of many that we have. A huge booming population of uh, microbreweries here. So it's a fun town. So come on down anytime. Matt, what is your take on, on wings? Are you a wing fan? I, I'm kind of so-so. Maybe I just haven't had the right wings yet. I need to come out. You got to get to Buffalo. Uh, that's why. Buffalo. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> come on down to Buffalo, guys. You, you know, you eat our wings. I'm telling you, it is just. I could be there in like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, come on down. Hey, it's worth, I'll tell you, it's worth the drive because I was in D.C. Um, uh, last week. Week before last, and I had some wings just because I had to. Doesn't compare. Yeah. It was awful. I was like, my God, my daughter was with me 13 years old. She was like, wow, they don't make wings like we do. Yeah, there's nothing like a bad wing. <laughs> nothing like it. I had to come back here and redeem myself. <laughs> I had to go to resurgence. I had to get, get alcohol. Then I had to go to Anchor Bar and have wings. So You needed so a resurgence. I, I, I literally had to redeem myself and just get, get my <laughs> taste buds to go back to what, what it's used to eating. Hey, uh, I just heard last call here. So do you have time for one more? Absolutely. Go for it. If you decided to open a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called? No, that's a good one. I, I honestly haven't thought about it. I'd probably call it uh, the weakest link. There you go. <laughs> I'm plugging my book. I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I would call it the weakest link. And, um, and, um, you know, I'd have some kind of a security test and the person who fails, it has to pay for everyone. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> and and yeah. we, we have to do something in that line, right? It's, it's, it, what else can I, I haven't thought this one through, but uh, that's the only thing that comes to my mind. Whoever fails the test, you know, everybody who has to walk in, has to do a test. Or if they fail the test, they got to buy. Yeah. Yeah. Back to, um, back to those security repercussions, right? Of failing a phishing test. <laughs> except you're you're buying beer that's right but hey n- nothing like alcohol right it's a great incentive and you get to talk about it why not and what would your signature drink be yeah that's a good one i would call it a 419 after the name of the nigerian penal code on which the fishing attacks that came from nigeria were named after right the, the penal code was called 419 yes that's it there you go. We call that's it 419 and that'd be the drink. <laughs> the signature drink. Signature drink. That's it. I'm sold. There you go. I love these questions. I haven't thought these ones. 
Well, Arun, thanks again for joining me, man. Um, I advise everyone listening to go check out the book, The Weakest Link. And Matt, thanks again. It was great having you on again and, and having you share your knowledge as well with us. Uh, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Chris. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Can't wait to do it again. All right, guys. Well, thanks again. Take care. Be safe. Oh, you too. Thank you. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. Learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.